0: Morning, everyone. Uh, What I would like you to do is complete this sentence for me. Now, not out loud, just in your head. Rahab the what? Okay, how many people had Rahab the woman of faith? Okay, nobody. How many people had Rahab the ancestor of Jesus, or I'll give you the great great grandmother of King David? Right, nobody. So, what did you have? now, now, don't tell me. If you have a Bible, please turn to Joshua chapter 2. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 216. It's interesting, isn't it, how we remember and define people? Last week, uh, Tim did a, a great job in starting our new Sunday morning series in the book of Joshua. Lots of challenges and lots to think about from chapter One this week, in chapter 2, we get to read a story. A story that contains three things according to a number of people. Suspense, a certain degree of sexual innuendo, and an underdog who triumphs. Everything that a modern audience loves in a great story. And although lots of us probably know the Rahab story, The issue I want to pursue this morning is this. Why the Rahab story? Why include it? Because in some ways, and this has been suggested, if you skip chapter 2, there's a more logical flow to the opening section of Joshua. In other words, if you finish reading chapter 1 and you then jump to the beginning of chapter 3, it actually makes for a much more coherent narrative. So the question, why the Rahab story, is a valid question. It's worth asking, but I want to suggest there are at least a couple of reasons for it. To start with, the very fact that this lady, although you may want to query that description, the very fact that this lady's name appears three times in the New Testament must mean that her story carries special significance. And therefore, it is worth telling. Rahab does appear on the family tree of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. She then appears in that hall of fame, the who's who of the Christian church in Hebrews chapter 11. Incidentally, interestingly, Joshua's name doesn't appear. And finally, James refers to her faith in his short epistle at the end Of the New Testament. So, Rahab is clearly a key biblical character. And therefore, her story needs to get out. But, secondly, this is not just a great story containing the three things that I mentioned a moment ago. This is a story that highlights and emphasizes five core aspects of the Christian story that we each need to embrace in our own lives. Grace. Faith, deliverance, transformation, and hope. So let's read the story together. We're beginning at verse 1, the first half of the verse. I'm going to read the first half of the verse from the New Living Translation, and there's a reason for that. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia. Now why did two spies need to go on a reconnaissance mission? If you were here last week, you'll remember that back in chapter 1, God had promised Joshua that in three days the people would cross the Jordan, they would go, they would take possession of the land. That was a promise God made to Joshua. So why the need to send a couple of spies if it's a foregone conclusion? Again, the story of Joshua 2, the story of Rahab, the events associated with this mission, Must be important. Let's pick it up again. Verse 1, the second half. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now did Joshua not tell the spies to go and look over the land? So how come they've gone into someone's house? And particularly that Someone's house. Certain minds boggle. Verses 2 and 3. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. So clearly Rahab's house was under surveillance. The CCTV cameras had picked out a couple of suspicious Israelites entering her establishment. And so the king sends a message to Rahab and says, give them up, hand them over. So what does she do? What should she do? She faces a major dilemma. If she hands them over, she's finished. The story's over. If she hides them, she's taken a massive personal risk. What would you do? Some people compare her situation to the predicament faced by Jewish sympathizers during World War II who hid Jewish families in their houses. And when the Nazis came knocking, they denied that anyone was in the house. Moral dilemmas. Life is full of them. Verse 4 to 7. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me. But I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had, hidden, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Rahab lied. Or did she simply bend the truth in order to save the lives of the two spies and ultimately in order to save her own and her family's life? And is that okay? Are there times when dishonesty is the highest ethic, such as at times of war? Is this an example of a situational ethic, which basically states that sometimes Other moral principles can be cast aside in certain situations if love is best served. Let me suggest that that might make an interesting conversation over dinner. I'm not going to comment on it. Let's read on. Verses 8 to 11. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did at Sihon and Og to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below, Do you know that is one of the most remarkable confessions of faith in the entire Bible, and it really forms the centerpiece of this narrative of this chapter. And this is why the Rahab story needs to be told, and why it needs to be told time and time again. This is why her name appears in the New Testament. This is why this lady is held up as a model of faith. But before we actually unpack what she said, what she confessed, let's not miss the impact of who's saying it. Rahab was a pagan Canaanite harlot, living in a decadent and a corrupt city. Rahab grew up, she existed in, she worked in a messed up environment. She was surrounded by dysfunction. Confronted on a daily basis with people who were known to be grossly wicked, steeped in adultery, steeped in idolatry, steeped in immorality, the influences on Rahab's life were anything but positive. Rahab found herself in a context and in a culture that was a million miles away from God, a million miles away from God's values, a million miles away from godliness, and yet, in this the most unlikely of places, and in this, the most unlikely of people, true faith was found. And sometimes as Christians, we look around us at an increasingly godless society. And it is. Where anything goes. And we begin to wonder, and maybe we even find ourselves becoming slightly cynical, About the possibility of certain people, of those people, of that person ever coming to faith in God. And the minute we start thinking along those lines is the minute we need to hear the story of the Jericho hooker yet again and again and again who in spite of all the barriers and all the obstacles and all the odds that are stacked against her from our human perspective expresses and demonstrates a faith in God. And I know we say this often, but the reminder here in Joshua chapter 2 makes it worth repeating. No one. No one is beyond the reach and the grace of God. Rahab wasn't. You and I aren't. In fact, anyone you care to mention isn't. And if that jars a bit, and if that shocks a little, and if that almost seems scandalous, then you are beginning to recognize. Then you are beginning to understand a key aspect of God's grace, that it's outrageous, that it's mind-blowing, that it's life-altering, You see, a God of grace is far more concerned with our future than with our past. Rahab's background, her choices in life so far, may have meant that so many of us would have written her off, already condemned her. But God didn't. God saw her differently from how most people tend to see her. The New Testament says, and I think actually Nigel's already quoted it this morning, the New Testament says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while Rahab was still messed up, God intervenes in our life, providing hope of a different future. And what a future it is, and we'll come back to that. Now, please hear me when I say this what we have done in the past does matter. I'm not for one moment saying that God condones the sinful choices, the behaviour and the attitude of our lives to date. But what we do now and what we do from here on in, what we do in the future is infinitely more important. Your past doesn't determine your future. Your choices from here on do. A God of grace calls us to move from our past into a future that we cannot grasp, but we can only live by faith. And that is Rahab's story. And please don't lose sight of who it is in this story that embarks on a new future. Her past story, a pagan Canaanite prostitute. Her future story, a woman of true Christian faith. And if you're here this morning and you're holding on to your past and if you're here this morning and you're feeling defined by your past maybe even paralyzed by your past then please know that as a result of your personal confession of faith today can be the first day of a brand new future. We must never write anyone off Because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Okay, let's look at what Rahab actually did say. Plus the implications and the outcome. And without simplifying this too much, Rahab's core confession of faith, I think, can be captured like this. Rahab heard what God had done and she believed. Rahab's heart was engaged. Rahab recognized who God is. Rahab cried, for mercy. Look at the first three words of verse 10 and also words in verse 11. When we heard or when or we have heard. You see, Rahab didn't see what God had done. But she was told about it. She heard the story of the events at the Red Sea. She heard about the Israelites' encounter with the two kings of the Amorites. And as a result of her hearing, she chose to believe. And that is why we must never stop telling God's story. That is why we must never stop recalling the incredible things that God has done. That is why we as a church must pass on these stories. Because faith comes from hearing. Romans 10, 17 puts it like this. Faith comes from hearing the message. That is why Sunday by Sunday when we turn up here, we turn up here. This is why our kids are taught these stories. This is why we run Christianity explored. This is why we tell the story of Jesus and the barking dog on Tuesday nights. That is why we retell the story of the cross here at Windsor Baptist Church every Sunday as we eat bread and as we drink. Wine. Why? Because we want people to hear the story. Because faith comes from hearing. Jesus in John twenty put it like this when he spoke into Thomas's life Because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We haven't seen. But we've believed because we've heard. Rahab heard and her faith grew. But notice how Rahab's faith journey didn't just involve her mind. Her heart was engaged. Look at verse 11. When we heard of it, she says, our hearts melted. And I know different people have different takes on what that term melted actually means. But Christian faith must impact the very core of our being. As we hear of what God has done, our hearts respond. So it's intellect and it's emotion. Its will and its intention. Christian faith, yes, it connects with our heads. It challenges our thinking. It transforms our mindsets. But it must also actively impact our hearts. It's got to move us. It's got to create a longing within us. A hunger within us. It's got to stimulate our feelings. Rahab's cold heart, it would seem, was melted and it was thawed by the reality of what she heard God had done. And then thirdly, she recognized who God is. You see, Rahab lived at a time and in a place where people believed in numerous gods. Canaanite religious beliefs were polytheistic. In other words, numerous deities, numerous gods and goddesses were worshipped by the people, including Baal, including Ashtoreth. But in the second half of verse 11, Rahab reveals a stunning discovery. And declares a critical statement of faith. She says this, For the Lord, and notice it is the Lord in your translation, the Lord capitals Yahweh. For the Lord Yahweh, your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. You see, true faith discloses an awareness of the one true God. And Rahab reached that place and she wanted to make it known. And we live in a context and we live in a culture where God's countless gods continue to compete for our attention, continue to compete for our worship. And an essential aspect of an authentic faith journey will be a recognition that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is the one true God. Rahab's confession of faith Reflected these three aspects. They were actually all meshed together a hearing, a believing, a heart engaging, a recognizing. And in order for us to nurture and grow and develop and deepen our Christian faith, I honestly believe that's a good journey we need to continue to embark on. Where we keep hearing, where we keep believing, where our hearts keep engaging and where we constantly have our vision of God enlarged as we see who He is and as we declare to a watching, listening world who exactly God is. But let's read on. Let's pick up the story again in verse 12. Now then, Rahab says, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters and all who belong to them that you will save us from death. You see, Rahab asked for mercy. Please show kindness. Please save us from death. And when... We reach that place where we cry out to God and where we realize that, you know, without God, without His intervention, without His grace, without God's involvement in our lives, we do face impending danger. We do face death. We are ruined. And I know that that may sound extreme, and yet that is exactly the reality and the certainty that Rahab faced, and we face. Rahab knew what lay ahead. She had heard of Israel's amazing, all-powerful God. She had heard what He had done. She knew what He could do. She knew what He would do. And therefore, Rahab reached that place where she said, I need mercy. Please show kindness. Please save us from death. And as we engage with God's story, and as we come to terms with the reality of a godless future which is distressing and is disturbingly bleak as we come to a recognition that without God we are in fact ruined just as the people of Jericho were then our need to cry out for mercy I need to say God please show kindness to us please save us from death And the minute we as a church reach a place where we downplay that and we underestimate the importance of stressing the need to cry out to God for mercy is the moment we have begun to lose it. And so if you're wanting to discover certain characteristics of an authentic faith journey, there's four of them. But there's two others which Rahab demonstrated that I want to just mention. Rahab's faith was a faith with risk, and it was a faith that was active. You see, hiding the spies was a huge risk to take. And whenever the king's representatives came knocking and the inquiry team came inquiring, Rahab put her life on the line. She sent the search party off in a wild goose chase. She risked everything on her newfound faith. And in addition, there was nothing passive about this faith. This was a faith in action. This was a faith that involved doing something. And so whenever you actually jump across to the New Testament, particularly to that little epistle of James, whenever James talks about Rahab, this is what he says. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous? Why? For what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them, that is, the inquiry team, off in a different direction. And that's why James finishes that little section of his teaching by saying, Faith without deeds is dead. And clearly one of the key reasons why Rahab is held up as an example and as someone who is included in that hall of fame is because her faith included, it reflected, and it contained this risky, active dimension and again, that is an incredibly positive model for us to follow. And the question I have whenever I look at a story like this is, how is my faith risky? What am I actually doing to demonstrate that I have a faith in God? The story then continues. Verse 14, we're near done. Our lives for your lives, the man assured her, If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And so she let them down by a rope through the window. For the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return and then go on your way. And then the men said to her, this oath You made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house and if any of them go outside the house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads and we will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on your head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell them what we are doing... We will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And I mean, and many of us do know that the imagery and the symbolism included in those verses is powerful. Rahab ties a scarlet cord from her window of her house located in the city walls, which was to become a sign of deliverance, that whenever the Israelites came rolling into town in a matter of days to do what needed to be done, that that scarlet cord would act as a sign that the occupants of that house were to be spared. And the two obvious connections to make, I know, are the blood on the doorposts in Exodus 12 and the blood on the cross in the four Gospels. Impending wrath is never a popular concept, never a great topic of conversation. And yet it's written into God's story. And therefore it's written into our story. But the hope of the Christian faith is that you can avoid the mess and the mayhem of God's wrath. And in Exodus... The angel of death was coming, but whenever he saw blood splashed on the doorposts, he passed over and salvation was granted. In Joshua 6, whenever Jericho falls and destruction begins, the two spies are sent to the home, identified by the scarlet cord, and salvation comes to that household. And so we read in Joshua 6, verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. And in our lives, it's the blood shed for you on the cross of Christ as Nigel read to us. And it's that blood, that sign of deliverance that offers salvation. And whenever Jesus returns to ignite, to initiate, to begin the judgment and separation process, it's the existence of that sign in your life and over your life that will determine our eternal life or other ways. And the Israelites painted door frames. Rahab tied a cord to her window and every single one of us is urged to kneel it across. All phenomenally significant signs of deliverance. And Joshua chapter 2 ends and Rahab's story has been told a story of amazing grace in the life of an outsider, a story of incredible faith, a story of divine deliverance, a story of radical transformation because the last part of Joshua chapter 6 verse 25 says this: "She lives among the Israelites to this day. In other words, she had a new identity. She had a new spiritual, a new moral, a new social framework within which to operate transformation and therefore this is a story of hope but here's what's so exciting for me about this story it can become our story it can be your story it can be anybody's story because grace and faith and deliverance and transformation and hope are yours to know and yours to experience and yours to live and yours to enjoy from this day forward. And that's why I thank God for Joshua chapter 2.